teach us and instruct us this day that we may be made complete and equipped for every good work. Amen. You may be seated. Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. If you don't have a physical copy of God's Word with you this morning, there is a Bible provided underneath the chair in front of you. There you can find a copy of the English Standard Version. And as we find our psalm this morning, I want us to note its original title. It should be right above verse 1, and it will read, A Masculine of David. If you have a NASB, it will read, A Psalm of David, A Masculine. And it's important for us to take a note of this original title because it tells us two important things. It tells us the original author, who is none other, as we can see, is David, more specifically King David. And the second thing it tells us is the purpose for which Psalm 32 was written, which is to instruct God's people. The word masculine, it's not an English word, it's a Hebrew word, and it means to teach, to instruct to impart wisdom. And so therefore, Psalm 32 is an instruction from David to God's people. My prayer is that we would receive it as such. But what is David teaching in Psalm 32? What is the instruction for us? Well, as we'll shortly see, what David is going to teach us is about the sorrow of sin and the unspeakable joy of God's forgiveness. David is going to teach us about the misery of unconfessed sin, secret, hidden, and silent sin. He's also going to teach us about what to do to find relief from sin's misery. But more importantly, centrally to Psalm 32, David is teaching us about the result of confession of sin. It's about the result. What is this result? Well, it is God's forgiveness of sin. Dear church, Psalm 32 was written to teach God's people, you and I today, that as often as we come before the throne of grace and we uncover our sin, we acknowledge our sin, we confess our sin to the Lord, that our Creator is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. And therefore, dear Christians, this morning, let us receive this good news from Psalm 32. By way of introduction, let us now turn to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, inspired, and life-giving word. Psalm 32. It reads, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. 
but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. It's given to us in love and for our good. So this morning we're going to be walking through our psalm under four headings. God's forgiveness, David's misery, David's confession, and divine wisdom. So beginning with our first heading, God's forgiveness, read with me verses 1 and 2. David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Dear church, here David launches this psalm off with the word blessed. This word blessed is very familiar to our everyday vocabulary somewhat. When we get a raise, we feel that God has blessed us. If we you know, hear the good news that, um, that you know, a, a child was born um, from your sister or your, your, or your, your brother, there's a new uh, addition member to the family, you consider that a blessing. Um, if you get accepted to a school, you consider that a blessing. And David here launches Psalm 32 with this word blessed. But in the Hebrew, this word blessed means happy. More specifically in the Hebrew, this word here is in the plural. So we could quite literally translate this happinesses. And the plural is important for us to convey because it's, it's, it's conveying to us a bundle of delight. I mean, this, this, is, this right here is, is, is a moment of extreme joy. In fact, Psalm 1 and 2 opens up with a celebration because of an observation. Look with me at the beginning of verses one and two. The, verses of, uh, the beginning of verse one reads, blessed is the one, and verse two reads, blessed is the man. This is a celebration about an observation. But why does this man, this unknown, unnamed man, why does David consider him happy? Why does David consider him blessed? Well, if we look at verses one and two, it's because what God does with his sin. David uses three words here to describe what, how, how the way God deals with his sin. Or put another way, David uses three words to describe God's forgiveness. And we're going to take a look at these three words here. First, David says that this man's transgression is forgiven. In the Hebrew, the word forgiven, it means to lift. It means to bear. It means to carry away. It conveys the idea of removing something completely burdensome or heavy. Maybe possibly even dangerous, harmful. It's like someone coming to your aid when you can no longer carry a heavy object, and they come and lift and carry away, remove this object from, from you. There's a, there's a sense of instant relief that comes upon you. It's very similar to what the psalmist says in Psalm 103, verse 12. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So the word forgiven... The mind of the Christian should, should be a picture of the way God deals with sin, that he lifts it, that he carries it, that he removes it. Second, David says that this man's sin is covered. Very similar to the English, the word covered means to hide, it means to conceal, it means to overwhelm. The word conveys the idea of putting something completely and utterly out of sight. It's very similar to what Micah says in the last chapters uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 19, 
when he says, the Lord will cast all our sins into the depths of the, of the, of the ocean, of the sea. In other words, it's like dropping an object into the depths of the ocean and you watch it slowly fade into darkness, never to be seen and never to be found again. Third, David says, the Lord counts no iniquity to this man. The word count, like our English term, it's a financial term. In the Hebrew, it means to think. It means to impute. It means to account. It conveys the idea of someone keeping a record of debt. However, here it's really important for us to note that David uses this word count to describe what God does not do. What he no longer does. David writes, the Lord counts no iniquity. And simply put, what David is saying is that God no longer keeps a record of this man's sin. Because his account is settled. And dear church, my, my prayer and my hope for us this morning is that we hear and we can see exactly what David is trying to communicate to us about God's forgiveness. And let, let me be clear, what David is not teaching us this morning is that God forgives 50% of sin. Nor is he teaching us that God forgives 75% of sin. Nor is he teaching that God forgives 99.99% of sin. Rather, what David is teaching us this morning, God's people, is about the extent and perfection of God's forgiveness. He is teaching us that when God declares forgiven, he lifts a person's sin, past, present, and future, and removes it as far as the east is from the west. That he cast it into the depths of the ocean, never to be seen or never to be found again. And that he will no longer count or keep a record of your sin. Put simply, sin is 100% forgiven. And dear church, here is where the joy of the children of God is found. That sin is forgiven, that sin is covered, that sin is no longer reckoned to us, and that we stand righteous because of Christ's righteousness before God's holy throne. Dear Christian, do, do you know that this is the, the forgiveness that you have received through faith in Christ? Have you, have you forgotten that this is the forgiveness that God gives to you at the moment of faith? Do some of us believe this forgiveness? Do some of us struggle to believe in this forgiveness? In a room this size with this amount of people, my guess is that there are some of us who do struggle with God's forgiveness. And the struggle is not necessarily that God forgives sin, but rather that God can forgive your sin. There's deep roots of guilt and shame. But there's an awareness of your sin, the wickedness of it. And therefore, you, you might consider yourself unworthy of God's grace or unworthy of God's mercy. You may even put yourself in the category of irredeemable. If this is you this morning, I want you to know for absolute, with absolute certainty that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ did not come for the righteous, but for those who are unrighteous, for those who recognize their sin. Not for those who are well, but who, those who are sick and find their need 
of a Savior, who see their need of a Savior. And dear friend, if this is you this morning, if you're struggling with God's forgiveness, know for certain that there is no transgression too heavy that God cannot lift, no sin too wide that he cannot cover, and no person so wicked or corrupt that he will not or cannot redeem. May we place our faith in Christ for the pardoning of sin. God promises that all who come to Christ and receive him by faith will be granted this forgiveness, will receive this forgiveness. And may this text also be a, a tremendous comfort when we are doubting that God forgives us or we want to know what God's forgiveness is. David uses these three words with intentionality to communicate to us this, to communicate this to us this morning. And now moving to our second heading, David's misery. Read with me verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And here there's a, there's a, there's a massive shift here. We, we go from the happy man to the miserable man. And this miserable man here is David. The phrase, when he writes in this text, for when I kept silent, it's, it's, it's shorthand for his unwillingness to confess his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. He's been battling for about a year at this point with this secret, hidden, and silent sin, and it is eating him away. Maybe that's us today. We have secret, hidden, and silent sin, and we've had it for so long that it begins to have the effect of what verses 3 and 4 describe here. And here David illustrates the consequence of hidden, silent sin in very graphic language. When he writes, my bones wasted away, what he is describing here is the utter collapse of his spiritual and physical strength. When he says that my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer, he's talking about his just spiritual vitality is being drained from him. This is the effect that sin has. And he describes it as being dried up as by the heat of the summer. Don't we know that here in Houston? Here in July, in the middle of the day at 2 p.m., it would be utter foolishness to go walk out into a field and just kind of sit there and let the heat and the sun just kind of kind of just sit on you. You would Very instantly, very quickly, you would begin to feel nauseated, very weak. Dehydration would start to set in. And David here describes it exactly in this way, that sin does this to us in this way. It drains us. When David says that he was groaning all day long, this is really a vivid picture for us of David groaning in his inner chamber. He is sorrowful. Sorrowful. He is moaning. But not only that, it also points to this inward agony that is within him. And dear church, here, here is, here's a lesson just off of this text. We know that although David is silent about his sin, there is an internal war that is raging within. This sin will not let him rest. And when David says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, here is David's diagnosis of the root cause of his misery. On the one hand, it's his sin. On the other, it's God's heavy hand pressing upon him. He has a guilty conscience. 
Dear church, David's graphic language here is a lesson for God's people about unconfessed sin, secret, hidden, and silent. And there's two lessons here. First, we learn that there is no sin that is truly hidden, secret, or silent. There is always one witness for even the most private of sin, which is God. You see, dear church, God sees our sin because he is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And God knows our sin because he knows our thoughts far, far, far beyond what, when we think them. And therefore, unconfessed sin is, is not only miserable, but it's also foolish. We may be able to hide certain things from our family and friends, to keep things secret away from those who we dearly love, those who are the closest from us, but we cannot do that with God. And therefore, dear Christian, every attempt to keep sin silent, covered, is merely a failed attempt to hide from the one that knows all and sees all. Second, we learn that there is no secret, hidden, or silent sin that continues without God's discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 9 say, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And dear Christian, if, if you have hidden, secret, or silent sin, and you feel God's heavy hand upon you, know for certain that this is God's love and care for you. And my plea with you this morning is that you would not reject it, that you would listen to God's heavy hand pressing upon you, that you would run to him and confess your sin. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12 read, The discipline of the Lord, my son, do not reject. And do not loathe his correction. For the one whom the Lord loves, he will correct, even like a father who treats a son favorably. Dear saints, if loving parents discipline their, their children out of love and care for them, how much more God who loves perfectly and cares perfectly for his children. And therefore, if you're feeling God's heavy hand this morning, we need to consider this a grace, a mercy, God's favor. God never presses upon the conscience of his children without leading them to repentance, confession, and faith in his son. He is the good shepherd, and he will bring you back to him. And also understand that God is not trying to destroy you. He is also trying to restore you back to himself. And this restoration that we find in our text comes through confession. Now we move to our third heading, David's confession. David tells us what he did to find relief from this misery. He writes, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Once again, here we're going to see two pairs of three words. And the first pair is about sin. David uses three words to describe our sin. First, the most familiar one is sin. Both in the Hebrew and both in the Greek, this means to miss the mark. 
It's a term used for archers when they would miss the target. The word expresses in relation to God a failure to conform to his law, a falling short of his glory, a falling short of his standards. The word transgression means to cross a line. It means to revolt. It conveys the idea of intentional rebellion. What would be an example of transgression? Well, as David, it is David knowing God's command, thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery. Yet sleep with a woman that is not his wife and murder a man that is not his enemy. This right here is David's transgression. Iniquity means corrupt. It means twisted. It means crooked. The word describes not necessarily what man does, but rather who man is. The word describes what R.C. Sproul famously wrote. We are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. The word iniquity helps us to, to understand this concept. So dear church, all of these three words are intentional from David. It's to help us understand what sin is and why it's a problem. It's effects. It's an it's a, it's a extent on us. And it's important because David teaches that the only way to find relief from sin's misery is to acknowledge, uncover, and confess our sin to the Lord. First, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. What does acknowledge mean? Well, acknowledge means to undeceive ourselves. To acknowledge sin is to affirm that we are guilty and lost. That our sin is rebellion to God. That we have fallen short of his righteous standards. That we have failed to love our neighbor as we should love ourselves. That we have worshipped the, crea the creation rather than the creator. That is undeceiving ourselves. Second, David instructs us to uncover our sin. He writes, I did not cover my iniquity. And here we learn what true confession is. One aspect about true confession. Not only to acknowledge, but to uncover. You see, dear church, true confession does not downplay or make excuses for sin. True confession does not call sin a mistake or an accident. True confession does not continue to conceal and hide sin from God. Rather, true confession brings sin out into the open to him. It reveals it to God. It exposes it for what it is. Third, David instructs us to confess our sin. He writes, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. The word transgression, I'm sorry, uh, confession means to reveal. It means to speak out openly. So really, he's, 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 a, he's a teaching us the form of his confession. It's audible. It's verbal. But I think this is an important point of clarification for us and maybe a, a misunderstanding of what confession is and isn't. Confession is not informing God about your sin. He already knows. Rather, confession is agreeing with God about your sin. It is seeing sin the way God sees it and calling sin the way God calls it. It's agreeing with God that your sin was not an accident, but it was an abomination. 
Not a defect, but a disease. Not a mistake, but madness. Not liberty, but it was lawlessness. Not, not weakness, but it was willfulness. Dear church, we, not, we, we ought not to put false labels upon our sin. To soften our conscience. Charles Spurgeon famously wrote, Do not give fair names to foul sins. Call them what you will. They will smell no sweeter. I think we need to call sin what God calls it, and acknowledge it as, as God does. And dear church, I hope this next section here is, 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 is comforting to all of us. Do you see what happens when David acknowledges, when he uncovers, when he confesses his sin to the Lord? David writes, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And simply put, what happens here is David becomes the happy man of Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. David's transgression is forgiven, his sin is covered, and the Lord will no longer count his iniquity to him. He receives God's perfect forgiveness. Dear Christian, here we learn that true confession acknowledges, uncovers, and confesses sin to the Lord. True confession says like David, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Secondly, we should find a tremendous amount of comfort in the response time of God to our confession, in his willingness to forgive us. Dear Christian, we should, this, this text teaches us, as Matthew Henry famously, famously wrote, that God is more willing to forgive than we are to repent. The moment that we uncover, that we acknowledge, we confess our sin to the Lord within milliseconds, it is an instant forgiveness. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would lead those who feel God's heavy hand upon you this morning to honest confession, to deal openly and frankly with the Lord. So, dear Christian, what sin is accusing you this morning? What sin have you not confessed to the Lord? What sin have you not uncovered? May we find comfort in 1 John 1, 9, in the assurance of pardon. And it reads, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May that be a comfort to us this morning. Now moving to our final heading, divine wisdom. Here God's people receive instruction on how to live after we have been forgiven, after we have been restored. Verse 6 reads, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. And here David instructs the godly, those who are forgiven, those who are restored in the Lord, to pray to him. There's a sense of urgency that is happening here. And the point that David is trying to, impre uh, to impress upon God's people is that confession of sin is not a one-time thing, but it is a continual thing for the Christian faith, life, and practice. That we should always be a people that come to God's throne and confess our sins openly and frankly to him. God's people should always have an, uh, an enduring, an abiding, an awareness, a sense of our own sin, 
And we should confess it. It's one of the reasons why in our order of worship this morning, in our worship service this morning, we had a, a, a call to confession. The congregation had a moment where we confessed our sin together, and there was a moment of silent confession. This is something that we should do not only as a congregation, but also in private. Like David, God's people should always, be, uh, uh, should always come to, to, the, to the throne of God and say, my sin is ever before me. Wash me clean. Create in me a new heart. Restore within me an upright spirit. Because, dear saints, once we fail to acknowledge our sin, temptation is right out the door. Once we, begin, once we cease to uncover our sin, Satan will begin to gain a foothold. As God warned Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. Dear Christian, sin is right at the door. One of the ways that we mortify sin, that we kill sin, that we rule over sin is coming to the Lord often and frequently to confess our sin to him. And may we as God's people continually do that. David continues in verse 7, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And here David teaches God's people that God is not only a judge who pardons sin, but he is a father who protects as well. Dear Christian, we need to remember that we are no longer after forgiveness, after faith in Christ. We are no longer in God's courtroom, but rather at his family table. That he really becomes our shelter, our refuge, our hiding place. That he becomes our protector, the one who will preserve us from trouble. That he is the one that has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. He has delivered us from sin and death. And dear Christian, it's because he is our father. It's for that reason that we should run often and freely to him in prayer. And to confess our sin to him. To pray for strength, to pray for wisdom, to pray for discernment. As Martin Lloyd-Jones writes... Of all the blessing of Christian salvation, none is greater than this, that we have access to God in prayer. Verse 8 and 9 continue, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. And here, once again, there's a shift in, in, in voice. Here it shifts from David speaking to God speaking. God is speaking here in verses 8 and 9, and he's telling his people that he will be the one to counsel us, to instruct us, to teach us with a careful eye upon us. And God's instruction to us this morning is to not be stubborn like a horse or a mule without understanding. A mule is a very stubborn animal. It's hard to steer it where you want it to go. It will kick back and do everything uh, possible in order to um, resist uh, uh, where you want to lead it. God is calling us to not be like that this morning. I think this is important for us to note because I think if we're honest with ourselves, that we really are prone to wander and leave the God that we love. And therefore, God is, is telling us to be humble, to have a submissive spirit to listen to his instruction, to listen to his teaching. And it is through this, through the, through, through the confession of sin, through listening to his word, 
that we will avoid this misery of sin. As one commentator writes, if David acted like a mule and God put the bit of suffering and the bridle of discipline in his life, he will do the same for you and me if necessary. I think this is a warning for us, for God's people. Therefore, listen to him. And lastly, concluding, verses 10 through 11, it reads, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Dear saints, I, I hope we see that the same way Psalm 32 begins is the same way that it ends, in celebration. This is really happiness revisited here. And here David is teaching God's people that Christian joy is not only a privilege, but it's also a duty. David calls all the righteous, all those whom God's steadfast love surrounds, all those who trust in the Lord to be glad and rejoice and shout for joy. These here are imperatives. These are our commands. And this joy is rooted in our assurance of pardon, dear Christian, that, that our sin is covered, that our sin is lifted, and that the Lord no longer counts sin to us. The reason we need to rejoice often is because the world is quick to remind us about our sin. Satan is quick to accuse us of our sin. And our flesh, if we're honest, we're, we're, we're prone to forget the wonderful work of redemption through Christ to redeem us from our sin. And therefore, just as often as we come to the Lord in prayer, so also do we need to come and meditate on his word and rejoice over what Christ has done. We need to rejoice that Christ himself bore our sins on the cross. We need to rejoice that Christ, that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We need to rejoice because God has granted us a faith in the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We need to rejoice because now, dear Christian, there is no more condemnation, but rather peace with God through all those, to all those who are in Christ. We need to rejoice because this one hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Amen, let us pray. Lord, we rejoice that you are faithful and merciful. You are faithful to forgive and cleanse us of our sin and unrighteousness to all those who openly come and recognize their sin and confess it to you. Lord, that you are merciful enough to love your own children as not to leave them in their sin. That you are merciful in your heavy hand towards us to lead us back to yourself. Holy Spirit, lead your people this day to acknowledge and cover and confess our sin continually. Holy Spirit, give your people the joy of assurance of pardon that our sin is forgiven, our sin is covered, and that our iniquity is no longer reckoned to us. We say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.